Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi and welcome to the 11th session of Islamic Book Reviews with myself, Usama Al-Azami, and my colleague at Edinburgh University, Dr. Omar Anshasi. This is a wonderful opportunity for me once a week to ask Omar what he's been reading lately, and we then sort of spend an hour discussing um, the book. And this week's book is um, Shahla Ha'eri's, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, um, The Unforgettable Queens of Islam, Succession, Authority, and Gender. Um, and really makes for a fascinating read. Um, and Omar, inshallah, will, um, the typical format that we go through is Omar will basically present the book five, ten minutes or so, and then we'll launch into a discussion. We welcome uh, sort of audience participation. You can write uh, in particularly YouTube and Facebook. You can write in the chat, and we will see the comments and we'll share those comments uh, and, and or questions. We'll try and address those in the last 15 minutes or so. But, uh, you know, besides that, we welcome your feedback more generally. And if you are interested in staying in touch with the show, uh, inshallah, please uh, like, follow, or subscribe, depending on whether you're on Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube. And without further ado, I'd like to invite Omar, inshallah, to give a, a brief presentation of the book before we launch our discussion. Inshallah. Yes, thank you, Osama. Uh, this is an important, and I must uh, say, very engagingly written book. It's, it's an absolute pleasure to read. Uh, and I think it can be enjoyed from people from all kinds of disciplinary perspectives, or even out, those outside the academy. Uh, the author is an anthropologist by training, well-known and well-regarded for her classic book on Mut'a in the Iranian context, in particular, Law of Desire. And in this book, she has attempted, uh, kind of given her background as an anthropologist, a kind of ethno-history, she calls it, of six prominent uh, female rulers uh, in the history of Islamdom. So the book is, uh, as, as well as an, uh, an introduction that broaches some of the broader thematic and theoretical concerns the book asks questions about, and a conclusion that reflects on some of the things we've learned in the course of the book. And the book breaks down into six body chapters, each an ethno-history and biography of a particular uh, female Muslim ruler. The book is titled The Unforgettable Queens of Islam, which is an homage to uh, the late uh, Fatima Mernesi's um, forgotten, a book on the forgotten queens of Islam. And uh, she notes that not all of the figures surveyed in the book are literally queens, beginning with Bil yes, uh, Bilqis uh, of the Qur'an, or as she is known in extra Qur'anic accounts, the Queen of Siba, uh, a ruler in uh, Yemen or Aksum, even in some reports I was surprised to find this Aksum in, in, in Abyssinia, uh, is the first chapter. And then you have an interesting one on Aisha, who, of course, was never ruler or claimed to rule, but was involved in various succession disputes, if you like, in the early Islamic community. Then two chapters on prominent uh, medieval female rulers, um, uh, Queen Arwa, Sayyidah Hura of Yemen, and Razia Sultan, the fifth sultan of the Delhi Sultanate. And finally, rounding out the book, you have two chapters on uh, respectively the first uh, prime minister, the first female prime minister in a Muslim majority country, Benazir Bhutto, who was first elected to office in 1988, and the first female head of state. So a president, uh, in, in Pakistan you have a president and, and the prime minister, but uh, in this case, uh, Indonesia's uh, Megawati Sukarno Putri uh, of, of Indonesia. And each chapter is structured in somewhat similar ways. She's interested in interrogating you know, what are the key obstacles uh, to uh, women's power, what kind of opposition did these uh, individual figures face, and was, there, uh, was opposition to their rule construed in religious terms. Uh, one of the motifs that one finds throughout the book is, is engagement with this hadith attributed to the Prophet Wasallam. Uh, that uh, people shall not, shall not rule, or sorry, people shall not prosper. Lan yuflaha qawmun, who, who, who uh, give their affairs over to women, or who are led 
whose affairs are led by women. And there is also uh, some engagement with this hadith specifically in the introduction. Uh, and she talks about its context as well. So uh, what happens towards the, the, the final years, the twilight years of the Sasanian Empire, and whom is, is this hadith construed as a reference to Por and Docht, or Buran in, in the Arabic sources, uh, the daughter of uh, Khusro Anushivan, she was involved in this um, succession struggle. Uh, she came to power briefly uh, from 631 to 632, so it's a reign right at the end of the Prophet's life, Sallallahu and um, although it's, it seems she indicates this, notwithstanding its brevity, to have been a reasonably successful ruler in the sense that she tried to unite uh, aristocratic and military elites who were riven by factionalism uh, prior to her ascent to the throne, uh, something that continues really after her death. Uh, and uh, in some accounts, she even, uh, or under her watch, as it were, the Sasanians scored their only signal victory against Arab Muslim armies at the Battle of the Bridge, but there is dating uh, controversy about its date. So some would say 632, in which case it happened during her tenure in office, as it were, uh, but more likely, I think, it happened in 634. Uh, but anyway, so to give some, some, some interesting context to this, uh, she engages quite carefully uh, with the secondary literature. Um, some sources, for instance, those on Razia Sultan are, are in, in Persian primarily. Uh, and where the sources in question are Arab, in Arabic, she engages where she can with, with translation. The surprising amount, actually, I, I was unaware uh, in translation when it comes to, for instance, the life and reign of Queen Arwa. And the, the subtitle of the book, Succession, Authority and Gender, uh, hopefully hints, and it's unpacked more as well in the, in the introduction, that these women, of course, are uh, charismatic in various ways, um, particularly when we have those we have more detail about and those who actually asserted their claim to power the last four chapters of the book. Uh, nonetheless, uh, she acknowledges very clearly that all of them enjoyed their authority at least partly by virtue of uh, dynastic ties. And that extends to the modern period as well. Uh, Benazir Bhutto, of course, being the daughter of Zulfiqar Ali Bhutto and kind of sign of this uh, Sindhi, uh, she calls feudal, uh, feudal dynasty, if you like. And uh, Sukar uh, Megawati Sukarno Putri, the daughter of Sukarno, the independence uh, leader and first um, premier of Indonesia. And it's true of the others as well, as well in a variety of ways. Queen Arwa's maternal, uh, sorry, Queen Arwa's uh, paternal uncle, if I'm not mistaken, had kind of consolidated his rule over the Yemen and recognized her. So, one important thing to point out is, yes, it's true, there's no denying or escaping the fact that their closeness to power is a function of the, their belonging to these elite families. Uh, but they're coming to power, and of course she stresses the agency of these figures, they're coming to power is by no means a foregone conclusion, quite the opposite. Uh, when it comes to Benazir Bhutto, for instance, uh, her brother, Mir Murtaza, really regarded himself as, uh, as the, the rightful inheritor of their father's legacy. So in the jockeying and jostling for power, and I have to say, and I'm going to bring my own opinion to this, in the very sordid and tawdry <laughs> struggle for, for dominance, um, you know, an opportunity, you know, they, they have to make a case for their rule, they have to defeat their rivals, and so on, whether that's in, in, the, in the, the modern period, which uh, in the context of this routinization of, well, not charisma, but of, of succession, in this case, as she, as she describes it, uh, or indeed in, in the pre-modern context, where it would involve actual uh, plotting and scheming and, and assassination, although that, 
it's interesting actually it's interesting that dimension does actually sort of feature um you know i of course in these conversations i'm the one who's usually sort of asking you about the book but um i try to read sort of um uh, from the book and I, I read the introduction in the first chapter and uh, in the introduction in particular it does you know th that sort of what you've described as the more sordid dimension of dynastic struggles uh, are treated uh, you know in, in some detail um, and you know one one other thing to highlight is you know, she's taken six um, examples who are very prominent very interesting but um, she points out that of course there are dozens and dozens of cases where um, you know women uh, whether as regents whether as in a sense um, being yeah. in power um, even if for relatively short periods of time are yeah. recognized um, yeah in, yeah, in that so way she points to examples in 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 Aceh in the 17th century, you have a string of, I think, four four female rulers. And as you say, many women, as in the Ottoman context, uh, as Velada Sultans, uh, exercised right. authority as a kind of eminence, Greece is, is by virtue. And I mean, uh, one even thinks of, um, you know, uh, the person who's seen by modern historians um, as perhaps the greatest Mughal emperor. You know, a lot of these people would have uh, come to the throne fairly early in their lives, and they would have had to basically be taken care of by a regent, who's usually yes. a woman, usually their mother. Absolutely. So, yeah. And yeah. Queen Arwa of Yemen uh, yeah. ruled in total, much of it as the facto ruler, of course, for 71 years, uh, which nice. is an astoundingly long reign. I mean, most of the figures she looks at, of course, Bilqis is, yeah. is a more complex question. Right. Uh, the, the queens she looks at tended to have very brief reigns. So, uh, Razia Sultan reigned in 1236. Uh, so, a very brief reign. Porandokht, of course, not, not an unforgettable queen of Islam per se, but still a reign that was rather, rather brief. Um, she does make a number of general observations that I think are very helpful to us thinking historically. So, for instance, and the Turco Mongol tradition of rule and, and that political culture was generally much more open to the prospect of female rulers. Um, and uh, I, all of the, well, certainly Razia Sultan and uh, Queen Arwa, well, not Queen Arwa, but Razia Sultan comes from this, this genealogy and this, this, uh, this tradition of, of politics. Um, I think I think there's also I mean one thing because we're talking history here, but one thing to point out, and she mentions this in the introduction that she's, you know, she's really an anthropologist, and as, in a sense, she's building on the scholarship of you know people in um, adjacent disciplines, and um, and so in a sense, um, people shouldn't necessarily come to this book in search of you know historical research of the kind that they might expect, because she's very often dealing with texts, and and this is perhaps we can some something we can go into in a discussion, um, the merits of this, so to speak, um, that would not necessarily be seen even within the Islamic tradition, for example, when she's talking about, you know, the way the way she de deals with the exegetical reports about Bilqis, um, they're not necessarily seen as, you know, uh, history in a sense that this is what happened, but rather in a sense, um, I, I'm not sure how best to describe it. Myth yes. sounds a bit derogatory. Well, but there, there narratives are many that are history, of course. So Nietzsche yeah. has his famous essay on the uses and abuses of history, and he talks about monumental history and other other kinds of history. And we, we've touched on this theme in previous conversations, where we talk about this kind of Rankian vision of history as history in the archive, and you know it has right. to be based on state papers and this this sort of thing. Uh, so yes, th there is that to bear in mind, but with Bilqis, for instance, th the key thing is seeing how she is remembered by Muslims. So uh, Bilqis is a curious figure because, as she notes rightly in the book, and the Quran does not, at least apparently, does not seem to reflect negatively on her rule in, in any sense. Uh, and in, in many respects, she, she does ask, you know, why is it that she hasn't been more universally appropriated as this figure of emulation by Muslim feminist scholars, which is, which is a good question. Uh, but she does uh, point this out. 
And uh, the figure of Bilqis prompted a kind of exegetical difficulties for uh, many in, in, in the tradition in the sense that hmm. they did have to recognize her. I'm, she does clearly demonstrate the kinds of virtues one would expect in a Muslim sovereign. You know, she consults her advisors before deciding what to do with Solomon's letter and, and so on. And, and she's very tactful. Uh, she wishes to avert harm from her people, you know, in al muluka إِذَا دَخَلُوا قَرِيَةً etc. Yes, precisely. So uh, she does demonstrate the, the virtues one would hope to find in, in, in a Muslim sovereign. Of course, right. in, that, in that period of her life, she is not, uh, not a Muslim. But uh, so actually, since she draws on the work of famous book of Jacob Lassner, uh, demonizing the Queen of Sheba, there are interesting parallels between the Jewish and Islamic kind of extra scriptural portrayals and narratives about, about her. And she becomes, well, she, she is praised for certain kinds of virtues, but still seen as somehow challenging the male order. So the fact that Solomon uh, subjugates her and in most narratives marries her is seen as, if you like, a happy ending because the uh, the, the male domination is reasserted by the end of it. Right. Precisely. So right. in some narratives he marries her, and others he marries her to a companion of, of his and so on. Uh, so the, the, that kind of threatening element of, of the narrative is tamed, uh, at least extra quranically. I mean, this is one dimension which, I, you know, I, of course, and I, I mentioned this a lot in, in past episodes, so I, I wear two hats. I, I'm an academic at the University of Oxford, um, and I'm also trained uh, as an alim, uh, you know, at, uh, mainly under the tutelage of um, a scholar called Sheikh Muhammad Akram Nadwi of the mm-hmm. As-Salam Institute. So, you know, in the tradition of Nadatul Ulama, I have an alimiya, so to speak. And so I, I wear the sort of like Western social scientist perspective as a historian, as it were, that she comes with. But I also wear the hat of someone who's thinking theologically. Um, and... You know, some of these questions are very interesting and in many respects quite challenging that she raises. And, I, you know, I I wish, obviously, she's coming as a social scientist and, and you know, everyone brings uh, their own expectations to a book. And, and I can't expect her to engage theologically on these sorts of questions, right? But I, I, I think that there's a lot of um, sort of, um, there's a great opportunity in discussing a book like this to think about, you know, categories like sexism, like patriarchy, um, and you know, to a certain extent, I, I mentioned the historical dimension. Um, I think I, I may have mentioned in passing the um, the hadith um, that she sort of uh, refers to and, and repeatedly refers to as the alleged report from the Prophet. Um, you know, exploring that historically and theologically would have uh, been something I would have loved to see. But of course, that's something which uh, you know I, as a theologian, should should engage in uh, yes. rather than to expect But I should say in, in her in her ethnohistory if you like of each of these six figures yeah. particularly exploring the kind of opposition they brooked and they faced and right. if this opposition can be construed in a religious sense so right. she does indicate that the uh, and it's, it's an interesting point that at least in the sources she read this hadith does not is not always invoked. So, for instance, in the case of Queen Arwa, um, it is not, or we, it seems, there are not many sources on her, of course, she talks about these two key Ismaili histories. In, 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 for Queen Arwa, and even for some of these others, one doesn't get a sense that opposition to them was mobilized along lines of sex or uh, with reference to religious arguments about the inability of women to rule or that that inadequacy. So all of them actually were in their various ways, of course, were dependent on, on our sources, the pre-modern examples, were popular. Right. Um, certainly in the case of the two uh, modern examples, these were democratically elected and enjoyed almost, certainly Benazir Bhutto, especially a kind of cult, following, following. Uh, and this is this is a function really of their charisma she does make the point that sometimes at least women do style themselves and this is very 
explicitly the case uh, with Megawati Sukarno-Putri as kind of mothers of the nation and that right. they have a, a kind of softer touch, if you like, and this is a cause of, of their popularity. But even Queen Queen Arwa and uh, right. to a lesser extent Razi Sultan did, did enjoy popular support as far as we can tell. And, and the reality is that, I mean, we, we speak about democratic legitimacy in the modern period, but I think historically um, you needed to have, um, you know, the a, a type of popular legitimacy, which is, you know, far more, far less sort of like, um, uh, in a sense, uh, easy to uh, designate and identify as a historical sort of category. But, um, you know, if you're wildly unpopular, um, the equivalent of the Ahlul Hal wal Aqd will probably do something about you. You know, the not just in the Muslim context, but even in a place yeah. like feudal Europe, um, there will be if you're sort of not uh, enjoying the support of the people who really. Um, it's not necessarily the uh, sort of uh, the the lower classes or uh, of, of society, but um, you know, I think that kind of popular. I think we have a myth about. And pre-modern societies that these were absolute autocracies that uh, I, I think it, uh, all societies have to have a bit of give and take between the ruler ruled and the ruled uh, and the ruling class. Yes, I, it's it's a tricky question. Hmm. I mean, I would say one, one point that, that ought to be made about the well, many of the figures studied, not all of them, is they enjoyed access to power by means of their dynastic connections. Right. And, you know, if you have a problem with that, then that does mitigate to some extent the, the, the sense in which one can adopt them as people worthy of emulation. You know, I'm all for celebrating mm -hmm. one's achievements and attainments. Right. right. But those attainments have to be deserving of celebration in, in the first place. So with, if you think right. of... Um, and any, really, nearly any of these rulers, right? The or uh, with the exception of Aisha, who, who is not a ruler, of course, Rodulana, right? And um, the approach to power or the the view of power, even even among the modern, well, certainly among right. Bhutto and her clan, uh, is basically a patrimonial one. Right. The state is there for you to fleece, and uh, you know, patron, you know. Power is something you gain, and you can then give out patronage to your followers. And right, I in uh, of course this was of course the norm. Uh, certainly, among yeah, no, I mean I think that's important society. to bear in mind that, that in a lot of societies, unfortunately, and and this sort of really runs up against our modern sensibilities. But I, you know, I think um, scholars like David de Cosimo and others who talk about sort of early Muslim, even Michael Cook about early Muslim republicanism, so to speak. Yeah, um, so this would is also very entrenched that. opposition to monarchy, you want to find certainly yeah. in, in this very yeah. pronounced in the Sunni, early Sunni tradition. In the early Sunni tradition. Of course, later on, it basically, you know, it's it's a fait accompli and it's it's very difficult to dislodge in a mm -hmm. sense. Um, it's it's only in sort of the modern period, I think you have these reimaginings um, with people like Maududi and Qutub and others who, um, and, and that's, I mean, uh, so I, I wouldn't set too much store by sort of that that sort of being a failing, so to yes. speak. Of, I, uh, Queen because Arwa, as historians, instance, we kind of... Yeah. I should say Queen Arwa receives as her dower right. a year's revenue from the city of Aden. I mean, <laughs> was this her father's money that she was... I, I don't know, anyway. No, I mean, so this... In many respects, I think, um, you know, legal scholars in, in the Islamic tradition would recognize that and and my father writes about this very eloquently i think that look this is not your money and and it actually misappropriated wealth in many respects and uh, and this is why in a sense you know there there are there is this sort of uh, embedded challenge with it. there's this tension obviously that runs through the is islamic history in the post kind of normative period to speak um yes. th that that uh, you know that we can talk about i think a lot uh, more easily in our own time because yeah. we have all of these other possibilities that we uh, were able to witness, so to speak, which mm. have their own problems. I mean, you, you spoke about, uh, you in a sense alluded to the con concept of meritocracy and, and there, there is a lot of, um, I think, uh, rigorous philosophical criticism of meritocracy's problems as well. So, sure. uh, and, and whether even genuine meritocracy exists, you know, yes. um, 
a lot of things are uh, and and to a certain extent we can go back to even like a hadith like annasu ma'adin islam you know those sorts of things are in many respects heritable traits and you know it's like yeah. another hadith sorry i'm just going to go off on another one but you have the you know ahl al-dusuri bil ujur and then in certain versions of the hadith the prophet says dhalika fillahi yu'tihi man yasha so True. I mean that's but as, yeah. to cite that's another, not a justification. Very, di- very different authority. I mean, the great Thomas Paine said that he had never heard of a hereditary professor of mathematics. <laughs> right, which right. is true. Right. Uh, but I mean, to, to focus more on the book, I she has put a lot of thought into which rulers she she has selected. So they all do have some virtues beyond just political acumen. So whether it's Queen Arwa, for instance, who in the Ismaili hierarchy occupied the rank of Hujja, which is the second below that of Imam, and uh, played a key role in the religious history of the Tayyibi Ismaili Dawah. And she was uh, very learned, her uh, paternal uncle, not maternal uncle, sorry, had uh, ensured that she received an excellent education. So. Many of these figures, I mean, in the case of Queen Arwa, she actually enjoyed considerable religious authority. You know, she was uh, recognized in, in her office and in her political responsibilities by the Fatimid Caliph. Uh, so that, that you know, uh, and others like Razia and so on, endowed Medaris and so on. So they were also patrons of, of learning. It's not simply that they deserve to be, or my sense at least of the book is that uh, Sahar Ha'ar is not claiming that their achievements deserve to be celebrated. The mere fact of their occupying political office or executive office is not the only thing that that is interesting or fascinating about them. But it is really how they used it and how they they expressed their authority and and what kinds of opposition uh, this met with. Right. I mean, um, there's another sort of aspect of this. So, you know, as with all the books that we deal with, there are so many dimensions that we could address. And, uh, you know, there's a saying that book reviews tell you more about the review than the reviewed, right? Because it really, we're reflecting on what really strikes our attention uh, or, you know, strikes us as worthy of attention as it were. But what I wanted to sort of... uh, if it's not too self-indulgent of me, so to speak. And I, I just want to acknowledge also uh, various questions coming in. Thank you so much. Uh, Walaikum salam, Um But we will try and deal with these in the last uh, 15 to 20 minutes, inshallah, as, as well as we can. Sure. Um, I, I wanted to, in a sense, home in on a, a couple of themes um, that come in uh, come up in the book, which I, I found quite challenging in many respects, given my sort of, um, uh, you know, uh, training as an alim as well and uh, you know these are i think very important um issues that muslim scholars uh, who are in you know the confessional tradition um in a sense theologians fuqaha and so on need to grapple with um and, and think about because they do reflect i think a prevailing normativity that uh, is global now right um you know this is basically um we live in uh, a globalized Western modernity of a sort, which has very strong normative claims um, uh, on all of us. It makes very strong normative claims. So, for example, I, I wanted to sort of briefly discuss the notion of patri- patriarchy. Now, I, I want to preface this by pointing out that, you know, I acknowledge that we're both men here discussing the book of a very eminent um, gender studies scholar, uh, a woman who was the uh, sort of head of the Center for Gender Studies at Boston University for much of her career. Um, so, you know, I, I recognize my own positionality in that regard. Um, and hopefully, um, you know, this can be a dialogue, the beginning of discussion and a dialogue uh, on these sorts of issues. And I hope it's, you know, gender is an area where you're far you know, better equipped in terms of reading the secondary literature than I am. So, you know, I, I make tentative first steps here. All that preface aside. So the question of patriarchy and also the question of, you know, what do mu- Muslims do about hadiths like this? Um, you know, how have modern Muslims dealt with these sorts of questions? And a lot of very interesting modern responses yeah. that uh, I I didn't read far enough to see, you know, to what yeah. extent she engaged them. And finally, um, you know, uh, so the question of the actual hadith, but also the question of, you know, uh, how, how should a, a scholar, including sort of, for example, an anthropologist writing in the West, 
you know, uh, deal with that sort of a hadith in as much as I, I found a bit sort of uncomfortable constantly uh, hit, reading it as alleged hadith where the, in my estimation there wasn't really sort of enough um, historical analysis of the hadith. So, or something um, like said, Kumatan analysis or something like that. Isn't that Kumatan analysis would have been very interesting. Um, and also, um, I mean, I ultimately, I suppose recognizing, it's... sorry, just, I mean, recognizing the sort of um, very, very sort of levels of authenticity in the tradition. So it's not sort of, uh, I felt the tradition was a little flattened when we were, when we we're dealing with the alleged hadith. So to speak, but then Ta'alibi's tafsir, which is full of Israeliyat, um, or all the, of these Israeliyat. specifically, not his tafsir. Uh, right, sorry. So, uh, and, yeah. and these these sorts of reports, uh, forgive me, that, uh, you know, the, the tafsir literature on, on these are, you know, they, they are very heavily influenced, obviously, by um, the sort of uh, pre Islamic traditions on these sorts of questions. And so they're not. Per se normative. I remember reading, for example, Suyuti quotes uh, this, you know, uh, story about Bilqis raising her gown so that she could step on the uh, on what she thought was water, and she quotes the sort of like, you know, uh, the tafsir which is tradition uh, that is narrated, and the modern editor basically says this is Israeli and it's Batil, right? And <laughs> just puts in a footnote. Um, and so there's this interesting question in the modern period: How do modern Muslims deal with these sorts of reports? They don't actually accept a lot of them. But they do accept, for example, the hadith that she's labelled as alleged. Um, that's yes. no one really just needs to deal with them just give that. Yeah. In the Sunni, uh, no. yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah, just I, a series of questions. I, I just thought I'd love to hear your thoughts on some of these questions. Yeah. So for me, I think so. The the book asks excellent questions, but they're they're slightly different questions. And for me. The, although the question of, you know, in what sense are these reports about Bilqis normative or not is a fascinating one. Hmm. Um, you know, for, for most pre-modern Muslims, I imagine, right. even for those involved in the tafsir enterprise, hmm. these kinds of reports are constitutive of, of the tradition. Uh, so, you know, we may not agree, and I imagine we don't agree with this particular depiction of Bilqis, right. but for most pre-modern Muslims, Something like this would have been would have been recognizable, uh, and in a sense, because she is interested in exploring the challenges that female rulers faced and how this opposition expressed itself, specifically whether it did so in a kind of religious vein. Right. Uh, it, the question of the the hadith's authenticity or authoritativeness or not. Can, can kind of be bracketed. The question then becomes, is this hadith being invoked? Hmm. And what effects does it have? So she says, for instance, in, in 1988, uh, members of Jamaat Islami file with the Lahore High Court right. a case or a suit that is promptly dismissed, saying that, well, she cannot rule because uh, she's, a she's a woman and we have this hadith. Uh, and I think she does quite a good job of skewering or, sorry, I should say, of highlighting, skewering and highlighting at the same time, if you like. The way that this hadith is often invoked in extremely opportunistic ways, so including mm -hmm. uh, whether uh, Megawati Sukarno Putri, who some of her staunchest opponents then <laughs> become members of her cabinet or members of her governing coalition, having previously insisted that women were not, not capable of serving, and even kind of people who have a history of supporting the cause of gender equality, like Abdurrahman Wahid, kind of seemingly um, opportunistically going against this, this long-standing commitment. Uh, and similarly with Benazir Bhutto, <laughs> who is, is depicted as kind of cultivating uh, Fazl Rahman, the, not the famous uh, Chicago University uh, intellectual, but Maulana Fazl Rahman, aka Mullah Diesel cultivating him as a kind of, of pet almost. Now, if, if you look at, at the 20th century, of course, um, and she, she mentions the case of Maududi supporting, well, certainly, the, sorry, the Jamaati Islami, certainly. Right. Uh, supporting, it was Maududi himself. Yeah. Yes, supporting Fatima Jinnah against yeah. Ayub Khan. 
uh, our, our colleague Salman Yunus has an excellent uh, book chapter right. on uh, Ashraf Ali Thanvi and Indira Gandhi. Uh, and his, argue, his argument is kind of a more principled one, less to do with uh, kind of realpolitik than the idea that, well, modern heads of state are not, uh, you know, do not enjoy untrammeled executive authority and they are restrained in all kinds of ways by modern institutions like parliaments and legislative bodies and so on. So that's interesting. So um, even those who would support the Hadith or as authentic, for instance, uh, then have to have a further discussion about its application, which is uh, a related but separate discussion. And you can think even, I, I, mean, I don't recall off the top of my head how Hamid al-Ghazali felt about the report, but I recall he was a great admirer of Margaret Thatcher. And I, I should say, just to, to end this comment, uh, I mean, I'm just down the road from, from St. Giles Cathedral, where John Knox, the, the famous uh, reform or uh, theologian in the reform tradition preached, uh, including against, against female rule, is his famous book, the Monster, uh, Against the Mod uh, Monstrous Regiment, as he called it, of Women. Uh, so we see this kind of opposition figures in, in multiple religious traditions. It's in no, in no sense distinct right, right. to Muslim. But, but I, I think, yes, I mean, in many respects, um, there has been this transformation in the way in which, you know, it, it, in a sense, this hadith has been seen as um, a you know, mushkil, so to speak. You know, it's mushkilul hadith. In a way that wouldn't have, it wouldn't have been hadith, mushkil hadith uh, oh. in that category, so to speak, in the pre-modern tradition. Um, it, and I think um, you mentioned Muhammad al-Ghazali. You can mention Yusuf al-Qaradawi, the student of al-Ghazali, who basically has the same opinion. Again, um, Qaradawi certainly doesn't impugn the authenticity of the report, um, but he points to the context. You know, in uh, and the context in the Sahih Bukhari report is quite sort of like. It's part of the hadith. It's basically saying, oh, you know, in the, in the case of um, the sort of uh, Iran or Persia at the time was going through really serious problems with uh, dynastic um, uh, succession. They had God knows how many sort of like successive so um, sovereigns, so to speak, yes. so in the space of 10 years. Brother and husband murdered Husra uh, and Anur Shivan and then her right. sister was murdered and very messy, right, right. very very messy situation, and of course it sort of like presaged the end of the empire. Um, but uh, in that context, even though the wording seems very general, um, and then um, in some other way, as Leah, as she points out in the book, Leah, Leah, in some variants of the report, she mentions the, book, the wording is Leah, as opposed to right, Leah, which right. is less categorical, you could say, which is less. Uh, yes, I suppose, and. <laughs> but I think again, um, you know, I, I, uh, this is really a question of how do Muslims engage a tradition, and the tradition, uh, as exemplified by someone like Qardawi or Al Ghazali, and Qardawi is usually a lot more sort of Ghazali had his um, sort of uh, he he might have been a bit. Some hadith scholars might describe him as a bit cavalier with hadith, so to speak. And this was a critique that was leveled towards him by a lot of Salafis. Qaradawi is um, a little more uh, sort of concerned about showing deference to the canon, to the tradition, um, but engaging in usuli sort of like workaround, workaround, so to speak, uh, and uh, in a way that is more likely to be sort of uh, satisfactory to um, people who are traditionally minded, so to speak. And so, you know, I. I I personally, reading here, and they talk about um, Margaret Thatcher, I think it's a little unfair to describe um, Ghazali as an admirer of Margaret Thatcher, but they talk about no, the it, way in she which... She was very strong, I mean... It's she was a very strong was, leader. Yes, yes, and, very and strong, I believe it was extremely divisive, of course, especially... Of course, of course. You know, she, she basically was forced out by her colleagues. Um, she didn't believe in consensus leadership, but that's slightly beyond the point, of course. Uh, to, I mean, just to drive the point, point home, they both also talk about gold mayor right the israeli sort of um head of state and um you know talking about well all of these muslim male heads of state have failed against the israeli head of state yeah. what does that say that and and you know using history in a sense to contextualize a hadith both 
in the context, original context of the hadith, as it's reported in Bukhari, yes. um, and in the context of the modern period, and and that's I think, you know, a fairly it, it, it's not um, something that pre-modern authors really thought to consider a problem, yes. but it is in the modern period. It's like, um, you know, it's a way uh, which both preserves the their sort of respect for the tradition, or at least someone like Al Khalidawi. And um, and for the prophet, but also tries to find this midpoint between those two in terms of uh, the the tradition yeah. and dealing with the modern context. So she she does actually explore some of these ideas in the introduction. She right. mentions at least once the the hadith is ahead of solitary in its transmission. Right, right. And she points to variants, for yeah. instance, and says that it you know it may not have been categorical. And yeah, cites yeah, no. Nabiya Abbott as saying that, uh, well, the Prophet والسلام, is unlikely to have expressed such sentiments because we know that he took the advice of his wives very seriously, for instance, hmm. uh, and so on. So she does engage in these discussions, uh, but ultimately it's it's not her focus. And right. this this is not this is not the purpose of the book. Now Yes, no, I should acknowledge this. That uh, I'm just making a comment on, you know, as I say, as a sort of uh, using the book as a springboard to think about and reflect on a question. Uh, because uh, as part of this uh, sort of uh, review series, one of the things that I'm trying to get out of it is to think about questions from a normative theological sort of perspective. Of and you know, I'm really grateful that the book has offered me this opportunity to reflect on this particular question. Yes, and, and I see the book and I can I kind of commend it to read this as an opportunity to reflect uh, not only on, on what these questions and this hadith in particular mean, mean for them personally, but also right. how, how it has figured in the reigns of these particular uh, powerful figures. Right. What right. role has religious or have religious norms played in their opposition to them for instance uh, so it's a very kind of illuminating series of portraits um i i also sort of wanted to think uh, use the book as an opportunity to reflect on the question of patriarchy and, and this is again um uh, it, it's a challenge i think for the the normative tradition to think about because Patriarchy is, um, you know, very clearly in, in the sort of um, the modern imaginary, uh, or you know, I think overwhelmingly it's a negative idea, um, and sometimes it's you know uh, rendered as a substantive, the patriarchy, right? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I wonder, like the the challenge that arises for um, Muslims in the modern world, and you know, this I think is a challenge to be honest, equally for Muslim men and women. Um, reflective Muslim men and women, so to speak, um, if, if that's a um, perhaps a little bit uncharitable, so to speak, but um, in in the sense that if we assume that pre-modern society was patriarchal, you know, uh, absolutely, and a lot of the uh, tradition uh, does uh, is portrayed in in Shalahari's book as basically being just suffused with this very problematic patriarchy, um, which he, you know, in a sense, tries to absolve the prophet of by ref repeatedly referring to this hadith as alleged, right? But in many respects, I think, um, you know, for the, uh, within the Sunni tradition, as we've already discussed, this is considered a canonical hadith. And this is not just, you know, one, there are so many hadiths that discuss, you know, the sort of, um, the question of, uh, gender and in ways that would be viewed as very patriarchal to many with modern sensibilities mm. and so I think there's that you know this is a challenge of competing normativities in my estimation and I think uh, that's something which really comes out to me from this book as a as a sort of like uh, a Muslim reader who's interested in those sorts of questions of tradition mm. that um, well I mean it's fine to sort of uh, accept as a norm that these societies were basically patriarchal in the pre-modern tradition but if we could take patriarchy as a um as a disparaging label uh, a patriarchal as a disparaging label and we recognize that actually the prophet 
وسلم, was himself engaged in these sorts of norms and these sorts and was in a society where he um, affirmed and legitimized various norms that modern sort of uh, westerners would consider patriarch then you have this problem of trying to square the circle so you you end up in a situation where there needs to be a conversation otherwise you either will say that you know you, you can't th those aren't um, views that can be held in the same mind simultaneously, shall we say. Yes, I'm just thinking, so that's my, many, that's my take on it. many points in the book kind of come to mind. So she talks, uh, I'm, even when you're thinking of a patriarchal context, which all of these women have dealt with in various ways, that she discusses, it is not monolithic. So it does not, you know, that is not to say that all, all men subjugate all women in equal ways. It's a kind of a complex right. multi-layered reality. Absolutely. And certain women are able to leverage, you know, elements right. of that patriarchy, you know, being attached to a powerful male. Right. Um, but in the book, she's really interested in within these patriarchal constraints. Yes. Uh, how exactly do they assert the agency? And for me, these kinds of questions give rise to the most interesting scholarship about gender. For instance, hmm. Yossi Rappaport's book on on uh, money, marriage, and divorce. So. Within a patriarchal context, how right. is it exactly that women are able to uh, to assert themselves? Right. While right. I'm not not even necessarily sub, uh, in all cases subverting the this kind of constraint, the uh, right assumptions right. of the society in which they operate. No, working within them. Yes. Yeah, so you know, yeah, and in some sense affirming them by working within them. Yes. Yeah, so one suggestion she has, it's a fairly tentative one, is that. Uh, based on the claim that the this hadith enjoys greater currency in the modern period, ironically, is that pre-modern Muslims may not have felt so threatened by the ascent to power of particular females because it, it did not undermine uh, the patriarchal system as, as a whole. It, it did not challenge it. Whereas now, when feminism is a kind of mass movement, and, uh, and has kind of very broad and deep impacts on society. Men feel somewhat more, more challenged, uh, you know, by rulers like Benazir Bhutto and so on. Mm -hmm. I'm aware we're coming towards the last quarter hour, so we should probably... We, we are, so we should really do uh, and, and give people the opportunity yes. to um, address their questions. So, Barakallah Fikum Omar, I mean, this is always sort of very... Um, interesting yes. and, and, and beneficial these conversations so uh, i want to thank you first and then i'm going to go first to aisha said's question i'm going to go in order so these yes. are questions asked actually uh, a while ago now well? absolutely so i'm going to just read it out for the benefit of those listening on the podcast and for your information alhamdulillah we're now on itunes as well so inshallah we'll i'll, oh, I'll be uploading these videos very soon inshallah to, uh, as as podcasts on itunes so Aisha Said asks, uh, well, she comments, um, very interesting topic of the book. Please excuse my not having read it. Uh, does the book talk about how strong uh, and autonomous these women in power were or were not in reality, uh, given most of them were ruling male domin dominant patriarchal societies? Right. And I think we've kind of touched on some of this. But yeah, so of course the, there, are, there are constraints on their power and to a great extent their power is well, it's a combination of several factors. One, they're dynastic connections in all of these cases. And secondly, uh, their, their own personal charisma and political news. So I know someone like Queen Arwa, for instance, the subject of the third chapter, did enjoy genuine power. She was uh, queen and de facto ruler for a total of 71 years. She played a major role in, if you like, uh, well, she, she was somewhat autonomous, I should say, and she also helped to kind of, towards the end of her reign, distance the Sulay heads of, of the Yemen from the Fatimids. Um, now, power is always negotiated in various ways. Uh, and it's, it's good for Kodians, you know, we should recognize that power is ubiquitous. Uh, but I mean, they, 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 I mean, a number of them, they, they did exercise power within, within the constraints of patriarchal societies and also within the constraints of dynastic politics. You know, for much of her career, Benazir Bhutto was fending off her brother, Mir Murtaza, 
and even her mother who turned against her, in the interest, uh, you could say, from out of patriarchal considerations, actually supported her brother's right to the, right. the political yeah. mantle that's of, actually, uh, of Zulfikar. I mean, that's an interesting uh, point yes. that uh, is made often by gender scholars. There's often the women yes. who are basically um, there to police yes. the patriarchal. Well, what is, uh, it's part of what the, the scholar Dennis Candiotis referred to as the, the patriarchal bargain. So patriarchy, of course, does offer women something in return, uh, and in, in return they have to uphold its, its kind of standards and enforce them. Uh, and my eye is drawn to, although it's not in order, Shir Ali Tarin's, and I, I wonder if I can tie this question to uh, RSSA's sure, question. Sure, please feel free. So I'm, I'm just going to read out his question. And first, I'll, I'll read out his very kind comment. He says, this is a delightfully nerdy podcast, by the way. Great work for you both. That's, uh, that's very <laughs> and uh, his question is, wondering what qualifies as a queen for the author. I noticed a chapter devoted to Benazir Bhutto, um, wh who, while tragically killed young, was by most accounts a ferociously corrupt politician. Yes. Puzzling. And if we could bring up our associates, which is closely related also on, on Bhutto. Right. So, so I mean, uh, yeah, uh, your references so, to Bhutto, Benazir Bhutto are interesting. I'll just read it out for the um, podcast, inshallah. Uh, Aisha Saida asks, um, points out, your references to Bhutto are interesting, leading a country like Pakistan after the most conservative regime was most challenging. The seeming power had so many dimensions that remain hidden. The seeming quote yes. of power, she put. Yeah. Yes, so, and it's something we find in other contexts. Uh, Hari, who, by the way, has conducted many interviews with close friends and associates of Benazir Bhutto, so she's very right. well informed about this. Right, right says that in, in the Sindhi context, the eldest son is often almost feared by the father. And in pre-modern context, there's also suspicion towards the eldest, a son or the eldest son, and there's no primogenitor, of course, um, is, is often mirrored. So it's no surprise that uh, rulers are often quite emotionally close to their daughters because they may not feel as, as threatened by them. Politically speaking, now she does acknowledge uh, in response to this, it would be hard not to acknowledge um, the corruption, although in the book she emphasizes several times that she's not actually going to be exploring the policies of any of these rulers in death. Right. Um, she does acknowledge citing interviews that, well, one of her interviewees says that things really go downhill for Benazir when she grants her husband, uh, Asif Ali Zawadari, quite extensive authority and a, a sort of minister, ministerial portfolio, and that's when things <laughs> really go downhill. Uh, I mean, speaking personally, I, I don't I don't hold her out as a great model to be to be emulated for men or for women. Uh, but certainly, I mean, but, uh, but she doesn't buck the trend, shall we say, of Muslim world leaders in the modern period. <laughs> yes, uh, which is which is tragic. I mean, again, yes. she is uh, the sign of this. Uh, uh, landed landed family, which I should say, Hari repeatedly describes or characterizes as feudal. Um, but nonetheless, I mean, even though we may not admire her moral qualities, I certainly do not. <laughs> um, or, or even um, in, in certain respects, her leadership, you can't doubt her political acumen. Um, right. She overcame and her tremendous, popularity as well. Um, of course, she overcame tremendous for, challenges. For better or for worse. Yes, for better or for worse, indeed. Um, so she is interesting choice, uh, mired in corruption, um, and so on. Uh, so it, it, uh, th that is really acknowledged in, in various ways by the author. Right. Um, I, I'm I'm a little conscious of time. I just want to read out. Um, yes. So uh, Samina Awan has a. I think a relatively brief sure. question. Uh, do these women in Muslim history, uh, or are they ever considered wise or brave? She puts in inverted quotes, um, or just being, just by virtue of being rulers, so to speak. Yeah. So uh, again, she, she's chosen the figures she looks at in the book quite carefully. So uh, all of them are well, not all of them are rulers, but those who are rulers are not just conspicuous by fact of their, their being in power. I mean, there are other figures who could have pointed to the Queens of Apse, the, the various begums of Bhopal in the, in the 19th and early 20th centuries. Right. Uh, but they are in, in, in various ways distinctive or, or noteworthy. Um, 
uh, Queen Arwa and Razia Sultan were very popular, right. as with uh, Sukarno Putri and uh, and Bhutto, and I mean they. There is a discussion of, of their achievements as well. Uh, I and their their coming to power itself means something is is, is meaningful, because uh, in order to do so in order to climb the greasy pole, so to speak, they are confronted by challenges that their male peers do not face. So their their coming to power in itself is, is a demonstration of agency and and, and political acumen. Right. Um, mm-hmm. On I see Rabih al-Khatib's question. Right, so he, he adds, a, adds a comment, I think. Um, yes, he basically comment. says, the hadith was narrated before the Battle of Al-Jamal and deterring people from... And was used to deter people from joining uh, me and Aisha. Yes. And the narrator said, uh, recalling it benefited him. So it's narrated by Abu Bakr. This is a, yes. sort of, um, you know, Abu this is Bakra. one of the points which I think in the modern period has been raised, notably by Fatima Manisi, of course, um, a sort of, uh, but, uh, you know, pointing out that Abu Bakr was actually uh, Mahdud, uh, you know, or something Mahdud, like this. So he was more complicated than, than this but it's, it's more complicated than that, of course, yes. Of course. And, and um, the thing is, I mean, when it comes to riwayah, that, that's a different question to shahada and qada, etc. But it's, you know, uh, Jonathan Brown giving Manisi due credit points out that, you know, it, it's quite an ingenious argument in a way. Yes. But, um, but yes, I, th- I think, uh, you know, that point is recognized by scholars of hadith and it doesn't impugn him as a rawi according to the scholars of hadith yes, historically. Uh, yeah. But I mean, the hadith is recalled in a political context. Uh, right. uh, Rabih is very right to point this out. So right, right. Aisha is trying to, uh, if you like, uh, rally people to her cause and she goes to Basra where uh, Abu Bakr is based and he's, he, um, well, he recalls this hadith in that context. So this, this is why, right. this is why he does not join, join her cause. Um, but it's it's fascinating as well. I mean, you know, uh, people very often forget that uh, the way of hadith very often takes place in that sort of a historically situated precisely sort of context. And I, I should point and, out that uh, mm. Ha'ari says there's no evidence that. Aisha's uh, very considerable following was deterred by this hadith from taking up swords and, and joining her and Talhana Zubair. Right. Um, so right. Th- that's another point worth bearing out. In all of Absolutely. these cases, even where the hadith is invoked, it does not prevent these women from exercising the, political the power, reality coming to and, power and, and, and joining popularity uh, either. Absolutely. The, I mean, the, the reality of a figure like Aisha in particular is that she's a faqiha and, uh, you know, she, she is engaging in her own ijtihad. And this is why, you know, I I like to sort of highlight, um, again, we've mentioned this book before, but Muhammad um, Akram uh, Nadwi, my own shit in uh, sort of fiqh and hadith, um, has just published a book in 43 volumes that, um, you know, combine, uh, compiles the biographical dictionary. It's a biographical dictionary of female hadith scholars. Al Wafa bi Asma' al Nisa, right? Al Wafa bi Asma' al Nisa. And, uh, you know, various scholars, Suyuti, Zabka, she wrote um, collections of Istidrakat Aisha Ala, Sahir um, Sahaba. Uh, I don't recall the exact title, but. There is a thesis now on Zarkashi's book on the subject. Right. The corrections of Aisha of others, you know, uh, scholarly sahaba on various questions uh, of fiqh uh, on the basis of her knowledge and proximity from the yes. Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And yes. uh, Shaykh Akram has actually expanded, you know, the two previous works to incorporate a much larger corpus, as far as I understand, yes. of her so corrections. Ha'adi says that, you know, her personality, Aisha's personality, much is very clearly in the sources. And, uh, and so Abu Bakr, forgive me if I just make this uh, one final point, Abu Bakr is engaged in a kind of ijtihad on the basis of that hadith and Aisha rejects it basically, right? Um, although, uh, you know, the later Sunni tradition, re- uh, you know, uh, presents her as recognizing she was mistaken, uh, you know, in going out. But, uh, you know, I'm not sure, and I'm, I'm not as well read as the, on this as you, Omar, um, I'm not sure she ever sort of questioned her right to engage uh, in, in the public sphere um, you know, uh, as as a 
in a sense, an authority figure because she, in a sense, continued to exercise that authority, maybe not as a prominent political figure, yeah. but as a scholarly figure by engaging in Riwaya for the rest yes. of her life. So Ha'ali points out, drawing especially on the, on the well-known book of Denise Spielberg on Asha, right, right. that you, you have, of course, reports where she said to have regretted her action later and some companions rebuked her for, uh, for taking up arms. But uh, there is one incident Ha'ali discusses where she hears the, 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 the foreboding sound of the, the barking of the dogs of Al-Hawab and is persuaded nonetheless to continue. Right. Uh, so there is that. Right, right. But but again, that's a that's a context of specifically this fitna, right? It's not really a comment on the question of whether um, women wield authority in the public sphere. And uh, what I'm in a sense arguing is by her teaching uh, and actually narrating a vast number of hadiths, she's one of the you know muktirin almost. I think she's counts as one of the muktirin as far as I recall. Yeah. Um, uh, the the four or five people who narrated more than anyone else. And, um, you know, in her, that's a public role. It, yeah. That's what I'm arguing in a sense. You know, she she is oh, a, a public scholarly authority and she's a faqih. And in that yes. capacity, yeah. So the that's never in question. is diverse and highly mentions yeah. in the book, uh, well, certainly her knowledge of ilm al-fara'id and poetry. Right. She was an authority right. in these fields, among others. We uh, have one last oh, question, oh, I suppose. I, let me read it out if that's all right. Um, the book seems to be, view political rule as a source of celebration. This is from Jan Islam. So, um, but then he asks, how does the author negotiate between the inevitable questions of oppression and authoritarianism that define um, especially modern polities? Um, how, does, uh, how does the author negotiate between the so-called achievement of political rule and the actual problems arising from unjust systems of rule? That's an interesting a very good question. Yeah, very, very good question. And uh, she does not. She she stresses a couple of on a couple of occasions. She's yeah. not delving into the policies right. of right. any of these figures. She says other people have done that. And if you if you yeah. like, you can go and read those books. Yeah. But she is interested in highlighting through this frame of ethno history uh, the kinds of challenges women faced how they overcame those challenges through the exercise of their, of their agency. So one could uh, point out that it's, it's almost as if the achievement or attainment of political power is being celebrated in itself. I don't mm. think that's quite the case. In I the didn't book think that's because, the purpose. Uh, but but it's, it's not, as you say, not the purpose of the book. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, and we, we have our own opinions about and, and the other thing it. I'd point out, if, if I may, um, uh, is that, you know, people write about terrible male public um, figures all the time. Um, and, uh, you know, I was just thinking about, you know, in Oxford, for example, we're having this debate, um, mainly at Oriel College, of course, with the statue of um, Cecil Rhodes. Uh, prominently figuring on the sort of front uh, facade of the college, very high up, and you know, in a sense, symbolising for a lot of you know people of colour, so to speak, um, their subordinate status. They walk under him every single day, right? And literally, um, <laughs> literally. and so you know, um, but there are so many sort of peons written to him, some of which are written by eminent historians going into you know nearly a thousand pages, so to speak. And um, I think uh, yeah, I, I don't sort of begrudge <laughs> this author the opportunity to write, um, you know, about these people, even if I have my own sort of theological perspectives on these sorts of questions um, and, yes. and also political reservations, so to speak. And in, in the very beginning of the book, she talks about, you know, of course, women's kind of increasing prominence and, and challenge to patriarchal structures and, and, and ideas. You know, part of that challenge is just retrieving these stories, retrieving these accounts, otherwise neglected. I mean, uh, many people will have never heard. I mean, unless you live in South Asia, will not have heard of, of Razia, Sultan of Delhi, or right. Queen, right. Queen Arwa of Yemen. I mean, some of these have come to prominence, especially figures like Queen Arwa, uh, and she talks about Tawakul Karman and so on, because they are appropriated by 
uh, female activists in different contexts as, as um, tokens, if you like, or symbols of female empowerment. But right. part of the struggle of feminist historiography is just retrieving these stories that are often neglected. Someone like uh, Queen Arwa, whose details are not recorded in, in a great many chronicles, for instance. So there is that to bear in mind. Right, right. I'm, I'm very conscious we've actually, I mean, this has been a really fascinating um, sort of topic of discussion. And thank you for your and, and questions, of course. And, and, and we thank all of the participants really for um, making this a really lively discussion as well. Um, we, of course, have gone over, this is the longest session we've had actually gone over quite a bit. So um, if it's okay, I'm going to ask you to briefly introduce next week's book and then, sure. then we'll wrap up. And uh, so I have not yet received my physical copy. The publishers have sent me a digital copy, but I'm sure you'll all be as excited as I am by next week's book, which is uh, Simonetta Calderini's Woman as Imams, Classical Islamic Sources and modern debates on leading prayer. Very topical subject and a, a book that has been uh, researched over many years. So very excited to read that and to discuss it next week. And, and I should end should really by elicit thanking, a, Yes. Yeah, sorry, it should, that book like this one should elicit, I hope, a lot of interest and a lot of questions and, and comments as well. So we look forward to that. Sorry, Absolutely. Um, and uh, I, I mean, I should thank Sahel Hari for her, her very engagingly written book, very, right. Uh, well, provocative in the sense that asks it asks important questions that we we should all be engaged with right. in various ways, and I, I think it, it's inescapable uh, questions, inescapable mm, questions that absolutely. we all and and we're very grateful for her to uh, you know bring these to our attention and you know force us to really grapple with them and think about them seriously. Absolutely. Yeah. And and if it if it's okay, I'll finally close by thanking you, Amr, for taking the time to read the book very carefully and mm -hmm. spending. Uh, an hour over an hour with me this week of course to uh, really elucidate um, your insights into the book and and uh, field my questions and the questions of our audience so with that uh, i'd like to um, bid you all inshallah uh, uh, farewell and we will see you in a week's time inshallah assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh